All right, looks like we're live on YouTube and I will let you guys have at it. Fantastic. Um, well, welcome to everyone who's joining us both on Zoom and on YouTube. My name is Matt Williams. I'm the executive director at the Catamount Trail Association and um, psyched to, to be here on the first truly snowy winter night. All right, of looks like we're live on YouTube and I will let you guys have at it. Ooh, that's Fantastic. Um, well, to everyone who's joining us both on Zoom and on YouTube, my name is Matt. Technical issues there. Sorry. Um, <laughs> Windows like automatically got opened up on my computer. Anyway, so um, thanks. It's like to be here on a on a snowy night, and um, thanks to everyone for for joining us the for the second annual. Um, Earn Your Turns Roundtable, uh, hosted by the CTA and MRVBC. And, and this year, we're, we're psyched to have some other CTA chapters joining us, um, along with uh, representatives from uh, Mad River and uh, the, the Vermont Outdoor Recreation Economic Collaborative, uh, or VOREC, that, that many of you have probably heard of. So. Um, I, we just want to go around here at the beginning and just um, have everybody introduce themselves and um, let us know where they're from. So uh, maybe Steve, if you want to kick us off, that'd be great. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Um, yeah, I'm Steve Sharp. I'm uh, a member of the Mad River Valley Backcountry Coalition's uh, board and uh, <clears throat> based here in the Mad River Valley. Great, thanks. Um, Diana, you wanna? Sure, uh, I'm Diana Todd. I'm the vice president of DASH, which is a chapter of the Catamount Trail Association. And we're in Southern Vermont. I just wanna say for those of you who think like Southern Vermont is Londonderry or something, uh, 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 we're Southern Vermont. We're down on the border, the Massachusetts border. We have more key volunteers coming from North Adams Mass than we do from Vermont. So we're actually, sharing the love with Massachusetts down here. Awesome. Thanks. Um, Maria. Great. Um, thanks, Matt and Steve, for pulling this together. And um, yeah, I'm Maria Young. I'm the president of the Northeast Kingdom Backcountry Coalition. <clears throat> we are also a chapter of the Catamount Trail Association. And um, located up here in the NEK, kind of the east side of the NEK. Great, thanks. Uh, Matt. Yeah, Matt Lillard uh, from Matt of Verland Ski Area, General Manager, and uh, yeah, happy to be here. Thanks for joining us. And uh, Mike. Hi, everybody. Mike Snyder, Commissioner of Forest Parks and Recreation and uh, VOREC Chair. Also very happy to be here for year two of the Earn Your Turns panel. Fantastic. Well, thanks again to all of you for, for being here. Just uh, a little bit of sort of housekeeping and structure where uh, we'll have a, a bit here at the beginning where we have some moderated um, questions. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about uh, COVID protocols for the winter and and some, some trends in, in backcountry skiing and um, ways that, that the various uh, groups on this panel are, are meeting the demand and looking to the future. So we'll We'll sort of cover some ground here, um, but feel free to 
uh, add questions to the chat, either on Zoom or on YouTube. And uh, Greg Mayno, the communications director at the CTA is, is monitoring those and is gonna feed us questions. And so we'll, um, we, we may be able to just work them in as we go, but we'll, we also have a, a block of time at the end here for audience questions. So um, psyched to, to get you all engaged as we go through the evening and, and to um, try to uh, hear what you have to say and, and speak to your, your questions as we can. So um, throw those questions out there uh, as we go. Um, so just to, to dive right in, um, and, and we might, I think we have Colin joining us here from, from Sugarbush. So before we get too far, thanks Colin for, for being here. You wanna say hi? Hey everybody. Sorry I'm late. No problem, thanks, thanks for joining us. Um, glad you could be here. Um, so we wanna start actually with, um, with Colin and Matt. Um, and uh, Matt, maybe you can, can kick us off. Um, it's early season. Um, a lot of people are, are uh, looking for, for turns at ski areas right now. Um, what kind of adjustments have you made to your uphill area policies um, in light of the pandemic this year, if any? Sure, we, uh, uh, the short answer is we have not changed much, if anything. The, the main change that we did post uh, to our policy uh, about two or three weeks ago is just prohibiting overnight camping in our two uh, lift summit buildings. So Stark's Nest and, and the Double Shack, uh, there'll be no overnight camping, which I think is pretty self-explanatory due to COVID because um, it's not a, not a, there have never been reserved buildings, so we can't guarantee that there's you know, more than one group in them. Um, or sanitizing or anything along those lines. But otherwise we have decided to um, give a shot at keeping it the same as it is last year. So we overhauled our uphill policy last year um, and we are planning on um, allowing our shareholders and uh, pass holders to uh, travel uphill during operational hours. And then uh, before the season opens, we are continuing to allow access to the mountain. So we, uh, other than reserving the right to change that if we need to um, at any time, we're, we're giving it a go with keeping the same policy. Um, obviously we're asking people to, to uh, make smart decisions in light of COVID and, uh, and we will be watching that to make sure um, people are following that as far as social distancing and keeping their masks up uh, when they're around others, um, you know, making sure there's no tailgate parties happening um, and, and those sorts of things. But all in all, um, our goal is to try to continue to, uh, to keep the mountain uh, open and accessible to people and, uh, until we need to open for the, for the season. Great, thanks. Um, Colin, can you speak to, to Sugarbush's uh, approach this year? Yeah, uh, what we've done is we've suspended some of our operations. So we have our Tour de Moons where we have um, you know guided skinning tours. We have our Waltz After Dark, which we've also closed. Um, we've closed our Mid-Mountain Lodges and our shacks to our guests. Um, so we wanna make sure that People know that they should arrive, you know, skin and then leave. You know, uh, just like Matt was saying, we ask that you don't congregate, you don't hang out, um, and especially no tailgating, you know, especially in the spring when it's nice. Like um, this past spring, you know, we had to ask people to leave our, our parking lots, again, have people hanging out and, uh, and doing that. So um, that's some of the big stuff. The other is, um, you know, be thinking about search and rescue, you know, you really want to be self-reliant these days. Um, you know, you, you don't want to put a strain on any other resources. Um, so, and like everything else, make sure that you're bringing a mask. 
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Um, Steve, I'm wondering uh, if you can speak a bit. Um, usually the, the CTA and, and chapters host a, a huge range of, of ski tours all winter. Um, obviously there's there's still some question marks about that but can you speak to um to mrvbc and and your the chapter's plans to to host tours or not this winter yeah sure um we we've decided to put two tours in the schedule we did two tours last year um and we debated it under the circumstances given the pandemic uh, and, and felt that at least uh, we felt comfortable enough to, to put two in the schedule. Uh, we're making adjustments um, in terms of obviously requiring that folks honor the, the state travel policy uh, when if, if they're coming from out of state and they are interested in doing a tour. Um, we're limiting and capping uh, the number uh, to a smaller number than we maybe would have otherwise. Uh, and uh, our tours are not in, in managed terrain um, because at this point in time, we don't have any managed terrain. So we, we have uh, uh, Vermont raw backcountry uh, for the intrepid adventurer. Great, thanks. And I, I would encourage people to um, stay tuned to the Catamount Trail um, website, catamounttrail.org, and, and um, there'll be info on, on chapter websites as well, but we have a, a COVID-specific page, catamounttrail.org slash COVID, where we're um, trying to keep information updated relating to backcountry skiing and COVID, and we're actively working with Forest Parks and Rec and, and the state on, on um, things like tours, and um, so we'll be posting updates there as on a rolling basis, um, knowing that, um, you know, we guidance is gonna change quickly and um, continue to evolve. So, um, but thanks, Steve. Um, Diana and, and Maria, I'm hoping, um, maybe Diana, let's start with you. I'm hoping you all can um, speak a bit, you know, as chapters that are managing terrain, um, speak a bit to how you're, um, you've approached the winter. Um, so here at DASH, our, our big project, our managed terrain is a former ski area, Dutch Hill that went out of business in the mid 1980s. And um, we're working with the US Forest Service it's in the Green Mountains now. Uh, we took a long time to get permission to actively manage that terrain. And we are now providing the, the sweat to make it possible to ski there. We're the ones that are clearing those former ski slopes. And so the, the virus had a big impact on us in that we felt we could no longer hold public work days. A lot of our volunteers would come a long way to participate. We would have people come from Rhode Island and Connecticut and New Jersey to come to our work days in the fall, but we, we just felt we could not invite them this year. So we have not opened any new terrain. We're gradually working to open up this former ski area. And this year we've only managed to be sure that the terrain we've opened in past years is still skiable, keeping that clear and open but we haven't been able to open anything new. We've relied on small groups, either two or three people, no more than that, of local chapter members going up and working to keep this slopes open. Looking forward to the winter, we have in the past had a strong program of tours. We would have tours at least every other week and sometimes every week. Um, this year we are planning them, but they're not on our website yet, our chapter website, because 
right now, I mean, you can't mix with anybody who's not in your household. So we're not even putting them on our website until that goes away. Assuming that we're cleared to gather from people outside our households, then we will um, host our tours again, but be very cautious about telling people that if you're coming from out of state, you've got to pay attention to what the rules are. And if you're from in-state, let's keep those masks on and let's keep far apart. Maria, you want to jump in from the NEKBC perspective? Yeah, sure. So we were we were fortunate this fall. Um, we have primarily local volunteers, and we had a um, still working in small groups and and following you know the the masking and distancing and keeping tabs of where people were coming from. But we had a really robust uh, fall work season, and due to the uh, lack of snow lasting into the <laughs> until today, uh, we actually kept kept that work going. So right now um, we are managing three different zones. Um, one um, is at the Willoughby State Forest and um, that's that's our go-to zone. We're really fortunate. Um, Mike Snyder knows it. He's, he's, he's been up there, he skied, <laughs> he skied there. Um, so we're really fortunate that uh, the, the Willoughby State Forest is well set up to, um, to, to handle handle a variety of users. So there's a groomed um, Nordic network and um, we've added in, we're really working on distinguishing the skin terrain, skin tracks from um, from from the Nordic tracks uh, to, to accommodate more users. Um, we're very lucky to work with Luke O'Brien, who's the recreation specialist in, in the district. Um, and that has just um, expanded <laughs> how much we can accomplish and how we can reach out to users. So Willoughby State Forest is, is ready to go. And um, we feel like if there's a spike in users, we're, we're anticipating that. Um, in our other two zones, they're on private lands. And you know we're, we're approaching those with cautions. There are projects in the work, the parking doesn't, you know, there's not a, a substantial amount of parking at either of those zones. Um, and we have really encouraged uh, folks interested in, in checking out those places to become a member <laughs> of Catamount Trail Association and join us for a work day. Um, they're not well set up for a, a visitor coming, you know, coming, coming through and, and trying to figure it out. So, um, I think that the second part of this is that we started off the fall um, with a focus on on education and awareness, and um, we held in a, a conservation and recreation primer as as a kickoff to the to our fall work season, and so just trying to really leverage the opportunity we have um, with our NEKBC council, with volunteers, with chapter members. Um, to recognize, you know, recreational users have an impact on the forest. We tend to love the forest. Um, we share a lot of common ground, um, but there's a lot we don't know. And it, it goes beyond, you know, don't cut that, that red spruce over there and leave that maple tree over there. There's, there's more to the picture. So we tried to zoom out a little bit and engage people in thinking about, um, you know, what, what, what's going on in the woods? How do we impact it as users? And you know, how can we 
kind kind of in, increase the stewardship component of 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 what we're doing out there. And so that sort of started off the fall season and we're hoping to keep that going. So yeah, looking ahead to the winter, um, depending on how things go, we hope to um, do some public outreach at Willoughby State Forest um, and, um, you know, just kind of spread, spreading the news, sharing the etiquette. Um, and, and really we wanna funnel people into become members um, because we feel like that's a really great um, way for people to become engaged and um, have have the resources they need and, and recognize there's a lot of work that goes into these zones. They Mother Nature helps out and it's a good starting point, but um, most of us who have bushwhacked around the Vermont woods know it makes a real difference, the work that these chapter organizations are doing um, <laughs> to make it fun out there. Um, so, yeah, so we're 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 hopeful that uh, you know we're we're mostly excited about the possibility that there might be a spike in users. It's great to see people out enjoying uh, something that you know brings us all together. We all love enjoying it. So um, I guess the other a couple other aspects to stewardship we're considering. Um, we are uh, trying to reach out to members more. So if you're an NEKBC member and you're like, wait, I haven't heard from anybody, it's coming. So uh, sharing, sharing some resources and, um, and keeping our members really looped into some of the challenges out there, some of the concerns that landowners may have, some of the risks out there. Um, we're also even looking at things like social media etiquette. And, um, you know, we all love, blasting our photos out there but um what we're recommending is you know if you post a picture of your great ski day tag any kbc tag catamount trail association because um it recognizes that there was some you know that, that we're that there was work to get there and um but maybe leave some of it for discovery maybe don't give the exact <laughs> trail name or zone uh, let people discover it. And I think that really aligns with the spirit of backcountry travel. Um, so, so those are some things we're doing and we're hopeful it, it sets us up for, you know, sustainable backcountry skiing long into the future in the NEK. Well, thanks all. And, and, and thanks everybody for their, their work. There's, I, I know across the board, there's just been so much time put into um, trying to figure out how to, uh, keep skiing safe and 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 make things happen this winter and um and uh, a lot of, a lot of people have really stepped up to um to make it happen so um thanks to you Matt, all for Matt, if you don't mind yeah sorry to interrupt I, I just wanted to to thank maria and and dana for their enthusiasm and and wisdom and this really sort of highlights uh, sort of the strength of uh, the approach that is being taken here in Vermont um, and in the region, really, where, you know, you have uh, multiple chapters that are community-based and have community support, but also have a network that allows them to learn from each other and really learn strategies and approaches. So it's great to hear what you're saying, your enthusiasm and your wisdom, and uh, uh, I'm sure I'll, I'll be taking notes. For sure. Um, and I, I think a lot of what you're saying, Maria, too, is, a, is actually a great transition to, to thinking about sort of the broader trends and, and you know, speaking to that spike in, in usership that's, you know, 
somebody asked me the other day, like, how, do, how will this compare to a, a normal backcountry ski season? And I, uh, my response was like, I don't, you know, normal has been exponential growth for the last several years anyway. So it's hard to know exactly what a normal year looks like. All, all of our, you know, we do a lot of trail counter data collection and partnership with the SC group and chapters and in, in the state and forest service. And, you know, we've seen doubling and tripling of use year over year um, for the last several years at, at major trailheads. And um, so it's, um, you know, that, that those trends have, have been going in this direction um, for, for quite a while. And um, so I, I'm wondering, um, I, I think I know the answer to this, but, but Matt and, and Colin, um, you know, does, does that sort of our backcountry experience, does that jive with what you all are seeing at, at, at ski areas? Have you seen um, similar sorts of trends in, in earn your turns uphill, uphill traffic at Sugarbush and Mad River? Yeah, at Sugarbush, we've definitely seen an increase. Um, you know, and that's everything from earn your turns to seeing people with tech pin or tech bindings in the lineup, you know, standing in line, you know, ready to go drive their skis through some hard icy bumps. Um, so, you know, we're seeing that out there. And um, some of the way that, you know, we're, we're anticipating that is we're trying to reach out and, you know, have some programming for these folks. Um, we're trying, we had plans for, you know, more guided tours, uh, some more after hours experiences. That's kind of when we do the majority of our uphill travel at Jurgerbush. Um, in the past, we've worked with local shops so customers could demo gear um, as part of their uphill experience. And, um, you know, we added solar lights to help uh, mark out our uphill uh, path. So we people had an easier time staying on our uphill route. Um, and, um, you know, that's some of the stuff that we've done to kind of make it easier because we found that, um, you know, we've seen a lot of new users. And, um, you know, one of the, the struggles we've had is obviously people not knowing our policy and thus not following our policies. Uh, yeah, we have seen, I think, Tremendous growth this fall. I think it's 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 COVID related. I also think it's heavily um, uh, influenced by the fact that the fewer and fewer ski areas are allowing, especially early season skinning and uphill travel. Um, as the market gets pinched, um, the, the skiers that are that are still doing it and growing are fi are finding they have less and less places to do it, and so they're you know they're driving farther distances. Um, they're coming to mountains that they're not necessarily familiar with. Um, and so, yeah, we, I think we've certainly seen a huge uptick in, in use, um, over the past fall and, and, uh, and, and as that pattern has, has progressed. So I also think with COVID and, and, and talking to equipment manufacturers, you know, with the, I think they're mostly sold out of any uphill travel gear, um, across the board. Um, so I anticipate that problem, um, or that issue, you know, with more people continuing to grow. Um, as far as how we've adapted, um, you know, the honest take is probably not that well yet because there's so much other stuff going on, quite frankly, as far as running an actual ski area that runs its lifts. Um, we have not had a whole lot of time to dedicate to the uphill market. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that I, you know, certainly want to use this venue for and others is to, you know, we do need people 
Um, while we can't, we don't have the time right now to speak directly to them, and it's a hard audience to speak directly to. We do need people to, you know, read our policies um, and really just use their head. You know, I think, um, you know, some of these new new skinners might not realize that skiing over 480 volt electric lines and, and pressurized water hoses is not a smart idea. Um, and I, you know, I can see it from my office, and I watched it today, just shaking my head and, and going, you know. We, we at Mad River, especially, we want to keep this going, but we need people to help and, and, and use common sense and you know, make intelligent decisions as far as what they're doing on the mountain. Um, so, I, you know, and I agree, I, I, I would agree that we, you know, more signage would help and more information, but there's so much to do right now. Um, and I'm not trying to, you know, to, to uh, cry in my soup or anything, but it's, it's, it's literally, uh, everything changes all the time. And and I think as ski area managers and those involved in the ski areas, we're trying to focus on things that we are utmost importance to our core operation. And then, um, you know, as of right now, you know, Mad River and I think Sugarbush are still uphill ski area or you know, lift service ski areas first and foremost, and, and an opportunity for other 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 uh, travel is secondary to that. So the short answer is yes. I think we've seen tremendous growth for numerous reasons. Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm hoping uh, we can actually even, you know, continue on this and, and zoom out a bit more. And and um, Mike, I'm hoping you can you can jump in here a little bit, um, and and speak I think briefly. Just explain, you know, for those on tuned in tonight who maybe don't know what VORAC is, maybe just a, a, a quick synopsis of, of VORAC. But um, you know, I know you all are are sort of looking at this this thirty thousand foot view of of trends in in um, you know, demand for outdoor recreation and supply and how that um, that interface between industry and, and outdoor rec. So wondering if um, you can sort of speak to how VORAC is, is, um, is seeing these trends too. Sure. Thanks, Matt. And thanks everyone. I'll echo what Steve said and just big thanks to the Catamount Trail Association as the backbone organization. And these the emergence of these local chapters is really great. And it's how, how all the good stuff is happening and how we'll have a future. Just really want to put that in there as a great a thanks for, you know, I, I love to get out there and kind of a lone wolf in a lot of ways on my my own time, the big heavy job. And when I'm done with it, I don't want to have be organized. And so I get that you just want to be able to go, but it really is the ticket. It's the way to get it done. And we're showing that. So thanks to all of you who are doing so. VOREC, it's an acronym. It stands for Vermont Outdoor Recreation Economic Collaborative. And all, all of those words actually really mean something. Uh, so this is an initiative, an economic development initiative established by executive order of Governor Scott in June of 2017, where he just said, let's plant a flag and say Vermont is a leader in recognizing that we can embrace our recreational assets. And it's really pretty basic. Think of our, our natural assets, our environment, woods, waters, mountains, um, they're world-class. We have built assets for recreation. That's trailheads, trails, uh, facilities, and we have pretty good ones. And then we have these cultural assets, as I like to call it, a rich heritage and a long tradition of vigorous outdoor life. Vermonters are good at getting outside, having a good time in pretty much any weather. Um, so leveraging those recreational assets, natural, built, and cultural for greater economic development. But along the way, you get these co-benefits of health and wellness, community togetherness, environmental connectedness, 
And so the governor said, let's plant this flag and create a portal, a mechanism for an intelligent, intentional approach to gathering input from participants, stakeholders, businesses, uh, and state government, and kind of a two-way street to um, understand, take stock of our assets, and then pursue four core pillars. It's really simple. It's grow participation in outdoor recreation in all demographics. It's grow outdoor recreation businesses and related. It's grow our capacity to steward those natural and built infrastructural assets. And then it's, you know, you know health and well, recognize the health and wellness benefits. So with those core pillars of the VOREC initiative, it's about economic development rooted in environmental protection and environmental quality um, to leverage the benefits of people getting outside in natural environments and moving their bodies um, for economic good, environmental good, and community wellness and health and wellness. That's that's role record in a nutshell, based on kind of a collective impact model of um, a, driven by a steering committee of 15, uh, 13 of which are not government people. There's two government people, myself as chair and the commissioner of housing and community development from commerce and, and community development um, to kind of create this portal for him coming to the governor and 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 back and forth. Uh, but it's basically representation from the conservation community, from uh, recreation businesses, think retailers, manufacturers, and everyone associated. And then the, the all important key um, volunteer-based member organizations, the volunteer uh, nonprofit trail groups, Catamount Trail Association being a great example, um, that kind of build and maintain and, and make all this stuff happen. So you bring all that together in kind of an advisory panel with this goal of growing participation, growing business, growing our ability to steward the landscape, holding it all together, and kind of turning and facing our recreational assets. And so backcountry skiing, earning your turns, it's perfectly consistent with this uh, in that it, it, we're seeing the re reduction of barriers to access and participation expanding. That's wonderful. We know we have um, economic development drivers through burgeoning backcountry skiing um, and the celebrating the public health and wellness benefits. The COVID thing has just put a light on all this and it's all that much more valuable and important. So I would say that, you know, that's the background on Volrec pretty, I hope fairly con concise and quick um, and very grateful to the volunteers building it. You know, we've had this motto, if you're out, you're in. That's what Volrec is. It's all about inclusiveness and representation in the outdoor space. And um, we've changed it a little bit to say, realizing that maybe that's, um, it, it should be, if you want to be out, you're in. Even if you're not out yet, we welcome you and we want to make it possible for you to find an equitable way to experience and enjoy the outdoors that works for you. Uh, and again, I would just say that uh, earning your turns, the backcountry spirit is um, perfectly well aligned. It's a rich part of our history and how we got here. And I think it can be a big part of our future, especially as we organize and build this together. Um, with including the connections to the, the economic um, development. Um, so uh, Matt, this part, you're, you wanted a little background on the VOREC and how it kind of connects to backcountry. Uh, what, I don't want to miss the mark. I think, I feel like there was a more specific request embedded in there. Was there? No, that's great. Thanks. Yeah. You know, I, I think just, you know, sort of, um, you know, help, helping us sort of zoom out and, and sort of seeing this, seeing this demand, uh, you know, um, from that sort of, you know, statewide and 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 beyond level, and sort of, um, you know, I, I think Bowreck does a great job of of melding, you know, the the um, 
the the recreational conservation and and economic aspects of this so you know i, I think um that's great if you have anything you want to add in terms of like sort of setting the scene for us in terms of you know where 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 global demand so to speak is at um for sure. this the perspective we've we just had a, a regular volrec steering committee meeting yesterday as well attended by a bunch of guests and we had this fantastic panel we had put a panel together you know kind of coming out of the summer and looking ahead to the winter recreation and we heard from folks what are you planning these are businesses reporting on what you're thinking we just had one on okay now it's here what are you doing and what we continue to see is you know um people reflecting an increase in participation the spike in demand and there's you know growing pains with that impacts on on infrastructure and resources and etc um but uh we're also seeing, you know, a run on equipment was mentioned earlier uh, and uh, new users and we're seeing all that is all good. Uh, and then I think there's real interest in trying to parlay all this as continuing to be part of the solution to COVID. It's healthful. It's good. We need it for sanity and other things. Uh, do it well, do it with suitable precautions and let's be better positioned to, to as again, to, to parlay this on the other side of COVID for the, the rebuild which can be recentered on a recreational economy for all of its benefits. I think Volrec is helping see the challenges, the opportunities there, and it's inspiring people to, to kind of see this, the positive side and remain hopeful that, especially with the emergence of vaccines, et cetera, that maybe we can power through and outdoor recreation is part of the solution. It totally is, and including on the business side. Great, thanks for that. I, I really appreciate it. And I, I you know, I, I just wanna say thanks. I, I, I think it, makes a big difference to have that, um, you know, sort of energy and, and emphasis at the state level backing these these efforts and and helping to provide um, support and context and and uh, and expertise and and all those things. So um, I, I want to zoom zoom back to into the the chapters and, and the ski areas for a minute here because it's sorry we talk about this um, exponential growth in, in usership and and a lot of demand. Um, you know, I think obviously that the places people then then look if they're interested in getting into backcountry skiing are you know sort of places places that have a, a web presence. So ski areas and, and chapters I think pop up early on in that search and sort of offer the um, the most direct access um, for folks um, who are who are looking to get out there. And so um, Maria and, and and Diana, I want to sort of shift back to you and and hoping you can talk a little bit about. Or why why your chapter started, but also about sort of how you see things going over the next few years, and uh, you know, do you, do you have plans to to meet this demand? Do you feel like you have enough terrain, or do you have um, sort of the the terrain you're going to get, or do you have plans to to add more? Um, and sort of how how does that play out for for you all at the at the chapter level? Um, I don't know. Maybe Diana, if you want to start. Uh, so at Dutch Hill at Dash, we have a very special situation in that we're dealing with this former ski area. It's right on the road. It's a state highway. It's plowed by the state. Uh, and it's actually at a height of land where they widen the road two or three days after every storm to make a nice turnaround spot for trucks and stuff. So we have plenty of parking and the slopes are right there. You don't have to go into the woods for a mile before you get to the steep terrain. It's right there. Even better, because it was a ski area, you've got slopes that are very good for absolute beginners. In fact, we keep open a big wide open metal slope 
that the town kids use for sledding hill. We try to welcome lots of different uses, not just backcountry. Um, but we also have some slopes that at one point back in the 1950s, one of these slopes was the steepest in New England for a really short distance. But um, so we've got a, lot, a wide variety of terrain. Um, that's our major project. We also have a few smaller projects that are kind of feeder trails into the uh, Catamount Trail itself. Um, so why did we form? We formed because the U.S. Forest Service in their planning, we had group individuals, as individuals, we had identified Dutch Hill as being a place where we could really enjoy some public recreation. They approved that idea, but to make it work, the Forest Service needs to work with an organization. You can't just be Joe, Joe volunteer. Hey, I'm going to volunteer and I'll go cut out in the woods. No, that doesn't work. You need to work with the Forest Service as an organization. So we needed to form a club, a chapter, something, and Catamount provided the perfect backbone for us to uh, join with their already existing relationship with the Forest Service to, to, to build this trust between our volunteers and the Forest Service and come up with work plans to make it possible to reopen these slopes. So what we're looking forward to in the future for the next three years, we want to finish reopening the slopes um, on Dutch Hill that have been authorized. And when I say reopening, number one, this was an old fashioned ski area. We didn't have the big wide open things like you see at Mount Snow. I mean, the slopes themselves were pretty narrow to begin with, but we aren't allowed to take out all the trees. We're only allowed to take out trees that are smaller than five inches diameter. So there's trees left, even on the former ski slopes, it's like being in a glade. But we also are getting permission to create new glades between some of the former ski slopes. Um, so that's ways that we're going to continue to grow the terrain at Dutch Hill. And we are hoping to get authorization to do more projects um, away from Dutch Hill. For example, the Forest Service has just approved recreation um, just to the north of us, uh, really close to Mount Snow. So one of the challenges for our chapter though is, can we handle more? Uh, you know, our chapter, um, it's so easy to get volunteers to come out and do work in the woods. Everybody wants to come out and play in the woods and bring their loppers and their pole saws and, and, and cut and clear and haul brush. It's easy to get people to do that. It's hard to get people to run the website, to send out the emails, to work with the Forest Service to come up with the sign plan on this is what we're allowed to do and we're not allowed to do. It's that behind the scenes administrative work that takes a lot of time. And that's where we are gonna need more input if we're gonna grow. I'm not sure that's gonna happen. Maria? <laughs> That's great. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it is. And it is challenging. We kept, we realized the same thing this year, Diana, or actually going into this year, which was, do we want more terrain? Yes. Um, but can we manage it? And so we focused on maintaining what we had this fall and we were able to do it. So we're feeling, you know, confident about exploring some new terrain options. And uh, I think you know, the outlook for the next few years, uh, certainly building on our strong partnership um, with the state with Forest Parks and Rec. And um, there are a couple areas designated, um, sanctioned for backcountry skiing. Um, I'll leave them unnamed at this time. They are 
in the distant future, um, but pretty, pretty exciting terrain um, that, that we're considering. And so that would be another partnership project with the state. Um, and then, you know, I guess looking, I, I almost look at it uh, kind of like the back to the land or growing your own food. This is, you know, growing your, making your own skiing and it, it can happen uh, really locally. Um, you know, we, it's great to travel around and check out new areas, but at the same time, Vermont is very well suited to have, we have backcountry terrain all over the place. It's just filled with hobble bush and, and other things, but um, <clears throat> so yeah, our hope is certainly to continue to to have some some new zones added added to uh, what we're managing. And um, just like there used to be, you know, rope toes every couple hills over, and you didn't have to travel far to get to a rope toe. I think you know the earn your turn uphill is the is the rope toe of today. It's a little healthier, um, and you know keeps people active. So there's a lot of suitable terrain in the Northeast Kingdom. And uh, yeah, we're still, we're keeping our eyes open. So um, this year we're probably, yeah, we're kind of interested to see, to see how many users we do have. Um, we sort of luck out in the NEK. Um, we are not near big population centers. Uh, the backcountry ski boom is slow to reach our, our population areas of Newport and St. Jay. And, you know, there's, it's, it's a little slow to catch on up here. And we're, we're kind of fortunate in that way. So um, we don't have to deal with that, with crowds like you see in Mad River Valley. Um, not quite sure in Southern Vermont how, how that looks, but uh yeah, so you can still find fresh tracks here and we hope it stays that way, but we'd love to keep expanding and uh, mostly maintaining really strong relationships with with our partners and our landowners who are, you know, absolutely key. So, um, but we, we have some enthusiastic partners out there. So yeah, hopefully we'll be adding some terrain. Awesome, exciting. Thanks for those those updates. And um, I, I want to jump to Steve here because you, you mentioned the crowds in the Mad River Valley and there have been some um, questions in, in the chat about, about potential projects in, in the valley and um, certainly um, not not for lack of, of commitment and, and work um, by MRVBC. Um, but I, I, I'd love, uh, Steve, if you could speak a little bit to sort of your chapters plans and, and efforts thus far on, on terrain in the valley. Yeah, sure, thanks. Um, well, the, uh, the Matter Valley uh, chapter, MRVBC, um, really was inspired by what we were seeing happening uh, around the state, uh, whether it was uh, DHASH or NEKBC or Rasta or Southern Vermont, um, and you've got uh, up in the Grateful Shreds and all kinds of uh, chapters forming and, and making things happen. So we were excited about the, the opportunity that that uh, presented and also stimulated by the fact that the state initiated a process in 2018, 2017 into 2018 to uh, revise uh, the Sump Management Unit uh, long range plan. And they were looking for public input. So a group of us got together and, and provided feedback in early 2018 and then we said hey you know really the only way like diana was saying that the state or the feds are going to work with you is that if you're a you know real organization so we formed as a chapter at that point ever since then really we've been working kind of on a multi-part uh mission managed terrain is 
one aspect of that mission. The other aspects include, you know, the backcountry safety, uh, you know, messaging and, and getting the word out and educating folks about the importance of being prepared and knowing what you're doing when you're getting out there. It's um, uh, messaging about backcountry ethics and ultimately as well, uh, mountain lands conservation. So we have opportunities uh, in areas that, uh, you know, might be private lands um, that where you could establish and then long-term get some long-term protection for those areas as well. So we continue to, uh, we have identified areas uh, that we're interested in. We've um, shared that information with uh, the state. And so those, those conversations continue. The process is slow. That is not surprising. Uh, if you talk to many of the other chapters, um, you know, they've had experiences where it's, it's taken time. You, you don't realize, you know, these things pop up and you think that it sort of happened overnight. And well, they, most of them did not. They took many years to get to where uh, they are now. It's just, it, you just heard of it when it popped up. So we're, we were a bunch of, uh, I guess, arguably somewhat naive ski bums that thought, hey, we can we can do this too, and and uh, we we still feel confident that uh, working with the state and working with private landowners <clears throat> that we can uh, uh, establish and manage uh, terrain as a part of that multi-part mission. Great, thanks, thanks, Steve. Um, so we've we've heard from um, chapters talking about um, looking to expand terrain over the next next few years, and I I know that. Um, other other CTA chapters are in a similar boat, um, sort of um, plans across the board to um, to open terrain. And so I'm wondering, um, Matt and, and Colin, if you can speak a bit to that um, that balance. You, you talked talked about this or touched on it some, but if you can speak specifically to to that balance, um, sort of meeting the demand for uphill travel at ski areas. You know, to, to what extent is it a um, does it pose a challenge and to what extent is it uh, an opportunity for you as you look forward? Maybe Matt, if you want to jump in first. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it, it's, we've talked a lot about, you know, how and if we want to capitalize on it versus just offer, you know, making it available to people. Um, it's a very different thing. And when you, we start, you know, as a uphill ski area, mainly getting into, into another market, how do we do it effectively? Um, we don't want to just take money for taking money without providing any additional services. Um, so we're it's a it's a uh, we talk about it a lot, and I think you know we don't have any good answers yet. Um, we're as we mentioned earlier, we're, we're continuing with our current policy now um, and seeing how that goes. And uh, you know, I could see it changing sometime in the future. Um, I definitely want to see this year how enabling people to access the mountain while we're open, um, which is, you know, uh, our last year's plan was for shareholders and pass holders, but quite frankly, we never got it going because by the time we had some good train and an uphill route, uh, COVID happened and we shut down um, literally the weekend we were going to give it a shot. So we, we never got to see what that was like. But once we get an idea for what that is like um, on our narrower twisty trails, um, I could see us, you know, potentially opening that up in the future. Um, and you know, running uh, guided tours or other stuff uh, potentially when we're opening, opening, which would be, you know, I think where our, our next area would go, um, as far as you know, having tours and and uh, and and making part of our business plan rather than just giving access to the mountain. Um, beyond that, as far as terrain development, um, 
you know, we, we are not a huge chunk of land and, and where we do have terrain, we certainly manage it with our forest management plan um, for mainly for downhill um, skiing. So uh, people access that and, and uh, or when there's enough snow and I'm sure they do after hours as well uh, within reason, but uh, we don't have really any other terrain to expand upon right now. There's, there's certainly some, uh, a big chunk of terrain on one of our borders, but it's not ours to manage. And, and uh, as it currently sits, its current owner is not interested in managing it for, um, for skiing access. So it, it kind of sits, uh, sits waiting for its next uh, steward at some point in time to take control. But that's uh, not something we're looking at at, the, at this time. Thanks, Matt. How about, how about at Sugarbush, Colin? Yeah, as far as dealing with some of the demands, um, you know, we've been able to come up with some programming like I talked about before. Um, you know, we were able to offer some other stuff, some, um, some programs like Walls After Dark, some other trips. Um, you know, um, we were, um, we're, we offered groups for our younger, um, skiers and riders, uh, like our mountaineering blazers. Um, and we've been planning on, on doing more as far as our challenges, our, our greatest challenge is really, um, our groomer interactions. You know, we see so often um you know it's just a frustration from our groomer operators yeah these are guys who just want to come to work and um and get their job done and not worry about hitting somebody with a piece of machinery um when they're inside those groomers you know although they're surrounded with bright lights uh they can't see that well outside them uh the tracks are throwing up a ton of snow um, you know, they can't see, uh, people skinning and climbing around them. And then you add in the other component of a winch cat, which, um, you know, yes, we, we winch a lot of steep terrain, but we also winch a lot of low angle terrain to move a lot of, um, snow. So, um, you know, you can encounter a winch cable on low angle terrain and that winch cable, you know, although it won't cut you in half, it will, um, it will throw you pretty far across the trail. Um, which is why, you know, it kind of comes all the way back to, you know, people who need to follow our, um, our protocols, you know, and that's kind of the, the big difference between back and side country versus uphill, you know, it's our, um, we had some bad incidents at Sugarbush where we had, um, believe it or not, uh, somebody jump over one of our groomers in the terrain park, um, during a midnight shift, they were doing a backup. And somebody was able to clear it. We also had another um, skier spray the windshield of a groomer coming down, um, you know, which was almost a head-on collision. Um, you know, we we suspended um, uphill travel for uh, for a while. Um, luckily, these have been isolated incidents. Um, we haven't. We've been fortunate, knock on wood, that we haven't seen any injuries as far as our uphill program, uh, but it is something that we're obviously very concerned about. Um, you know, I know uh, late season at Stowe last year, they did have an incident um, that search and rescue had to be called in on after they were closed for COVID. So, um, you know, again, that's something that we are, you know, worried about um, going forward. Well, 
thanks for for sharing those concerns. I think it's important. Um, and your, your comments about snow guns earlier too, Matt. You know, I think it's important for for people to know and and to be aware of and and um, be respectful of. So um, certainly a, a good reminder to to check websites and and social media of ski areas before you go and make sure you um, know what the policies are and um, and. And that you you know you check regularly as you know I know they change in in some places too. So um, thanks all. So um, yeah, as we as we look forward here, um, we, we want to sort of end end this this facilitated um, portion, thinking about you know where we go from here with with uh, backcountry skiing in Vermont and and. Um, look forward to um to um participant questions and 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 thoughts on on this too um but we'll we'll sort of start with our our panelists and um back to the uh back to our chapter uh participants you know just thinking about um you know lessons learned for for you all um you know as you've gone through this process and gotten terrain opened up um you know what? What have you learned um, through that that could make it easier for other communities who are are thinking about this um, as they as they start down this road? Maybe Maria, if you or if you want to jump in, and then sure. Um, huh? I guess you know I'm still learning, <laughs> so I don't know that I have the answer for that. But um, I think. I know Greg, you know, shared this in, in one of the chat comments, but there really are a lot of stakeholders on, on any given piece of land. Um, and whether that's private property or public property, and I'm thinking of like wildlife stakeholders and hunters traveling through and, um, you know, boundaries and, and property lines only go so far. So I guess I'm just thinking to really you know, before you start off, <laughs> uh, really considering uh, the, you know, what, who all those stakeholders might be, um, because you're not going to hear all those voices uh, when you ask everybody to raise their hand about who's interested in backcountry skiing, but you will hear from them <laughs> when, when you start a project and um, you come into some of those, you know, potential opportunities or potential conflicts. So I think starting with that is a, is a good idea. Um, I guess we're also realizing in the NEKBC, um, we all know north facing um, slopes are preferred, but we don't seem to be on a lot of them. So, you know, thinking, getting to know, just like where, you know, you, when you build a house somewhere, you might take some time to, you know, watch the sunrise and drop and see what the snow does. I would say, considering, you know, we're relying on nature. Um, we're, we're not, I think, you know, what Matt and Colin are, are talking about their ski areas. You guys are seeing so much use um, because you make snow and we can, you know, there was no snow in the back country until very recently. So, so in the back country, there's not gonna be snow made. And so, you know, really thinking about those natural elements too, before getting started um seem like a good idea i'm not saying we did that but probably for our next zone we're gonna do that i think um yeah so i, th I think that would be a good start if i were to offer any lessons from what we went through at dash getting started at dutch hill the number one would be be patient the the idea was first 
brought forward to the Forest Service in 2014, and we didn't cut our first tree until 2017. Uh, so number one, be patient. And then I'd like to echo something that Maria touched on, which is you need to have, yes, very good relationship with the landowner manager, being it the Forest Service or the state or private owner, but you also need to have a good relationship with the town. Um, or the area. I, I think that Dutch Hill, I don't know how we were smart enough to think of it, but we did. We The first year that we were starting to cut, we had a program we put together called What's Happening at Dutch Hill? And we advertised it widely in the town. And we got people together in the evening. We had representatives there from the Forest Service, what have you. And so we were able to have an opportunity for the snowmobile people and the ATV people to voice their concerns and are they being kicked out of this area that they always used to use and um, the Forest Service is our biggest ally in terms of helping us separate the snowmobile use from our own use because the Forest Service has very strict rules about where you can use snowmobiles and so they they are able to be the bad guy they're the ones that tell the snowmobilers no you can't go up there it's not us that have to police it the Forest Service is very good they're a great ally for us um, the goodwill with the town, I think, is really important um, so that the backcountry skiers aren't treated as outsiders, but that they are, you know, that what's happening at Dutch Hill is important for the town as well. And I think the fact that we are keeping their sledding hill open, it had been getting grown over. It wasn't really usable anymore. And now we mow it. It's beautiful. You can go up there on two inches of snow. So um, those are my things. Be patient and have good relationships with the town. Like I said before, it's easy to find volunteers to work out in the woods, hard to find volunteers behind the scenes. Go for it. Doable. Matt, I was, I was thinking of, of one other thing. That's, yeah, absolutely, Diane. I certainly echo that. Um, I was also just thinking of a concept that was introduced in our conservation and recreation primer this fall um, by a, a forester for the landowner um, where we were working. And, um, you know, there, we think of, we tend to think of things as very permanent, like once there's a trail here, there's always going to be a trail here. And it's very devastating if those trails go away. Um, but he kind of introduced the idea and certainly, you know, as far as um, managing a forest that things aren't permanent, right? They change and forests grow and they get cut down and um, there's some opportunity in there too. So, you know, maybe it's uh, still more active up here, but we have, you know, a lot of logging happens up here. Um, doesn't happen in the way it used to, um, which is probably a good thing, but, you know, new terrain <laughs> is created all the time and forests are changing. And I think there's a benefit to thinking of um, this is a little different than how it works in a ski area for the most part. Um, and I think, you know, we have the opportunity in backcountry terrain to maybe think of it as a little bit more dynamic um, and, you know, let the forest may grow up in a place. <laughs> we may manage it in such a way that the forest grows up and then there might be a new opportunity somewhere else. And so, you know, kind of keeping those dynamic forces um, as a benefit and not just a, a setback is, is also helpful. Well, Maria and Diana, once again, <laughs> words of wisdom. Um, I'll, I'll be on that last bit there, Maria. I'll, I'll be curious to maybe hear some uh, more from Mike Schneider on, on some of those thoughts about sort of the logging and 
potential uh, compatibility. But in terms of MRVBC and, and maybe some of the lessons we've learned, certainly, as I mentioned before, as, as ski bums who, who got into to, to this and were inspired to get into this, we've learned that, yes, uh, per, patience and persistence, uh, this is going to take time. And ultimately, these are kind of long-term efforts that require long-term commitment. So um, you got to be prepared and ready sort of for the long haul. Um, particular challenges that sort of we, I think, became more keenly aware of, I don't know, parking, 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 right? I mean, you can, you can have uh, a terrain that's managed, but if you don't have the parking, you can create a real problem for neighbors, a real problem for the local community, and you need their support. So there are particular issues that need to be addressed, that being, you know, one sort of example, but as uh, Maria suggested, there's other stakeholders, other interests, and you have to try to find a balance. So you need to work towards building that community support and building that coalition. Um, you know, there are particular challenges on public land, or, you know, uh, there's uh, plans or processes uh, that you have to go through that can take time. On private land, you, you have things that, that can get, uh, whether it's uh, getting towards having an easement, those things take time. Um, having an agreement with a landowner, um, those things are, are uh, you know, trust relationships uh, that need to be maintained and can be easily lost if not properly managed. So those are important elements or sort of awareness that we're, we're learning as we, we've gotten into this. Um, not surprising to the trail groups who've already crossed this path, but for this group that formed, that's what we're learning from the process and from other groups. Um, you know, I think Act 250 is a particular challenge uh, at the moment. I know there's, there's questions about trails and, and where does Act 250 fit? Um, you know, that, that's an area that, that I think adds complexity as well. And I know there's conversations in the legislature and other groups about the future of that. Um, and we see a real opportunity for, you know, building this coalition uh, that not only works on improving access through parking and mass terrain, but also really uh, improves awareness and knowledge of how to be safe, how to be respectful out uh, in the backcountry, how to be respectful uh, at the scariest who have, uh, been very generous in, in, in many cases about uh, allowing us to be able to enjoy their resource. And so we need to make sure that we respect that. Um, you know, it would be, it make things would be a little easier if we had a little more predictability in the process. Um, so if there are ways in which we can provide greater predictability, um, that would be, I think, of value. Uh, you know, so I, I think um, that those are more or less the, the lessons and, and, and things that we've learned. Thanks, Steve. And um, an, another good good segue. I want to kick it over to, to Mike here. And um, Mike, I know you wear a, a lot of hats. And if you want to put on your forester hat and, and, and speak to sort of um, forest management and and and, um, and Maria's point, feel free. But I, I do also want, uh, I'm hoping you can speak a little bit to um, uh, some of those um, sort of pieces that, that Steve was talking about, because there is you know, there will always be a lot of stakeholders and there will always be a lot of interest in the, you know, every project will always have its complexity, but we know there's also a, a, a massive amount of work happening at the, the state level to make it easier for the next group to sort of go down this road. Um, so wondering if you can can speak to some of those. those sure, items. yeah, I'm happy to. And it's, it's just great to listen. And Steve, don't sell yourself short. That was a lot of wisdom there too, but I would agree, Maria 
and Diana, that's uh, it's just it's very rich, fabulous, and it's an example of like sharing it and you know learning from each other, and this is how we do it. It's really terrific to hear. I'll interject a couple of things. There's a lot here. I, I'm so thrilled uh, with the conversation about forestry, the compatibility. I'll just I'll go there real quick, Matt. Okay, yes, totally compatible. Uh, and to Steve's point about parking, really, we have 355,000 acres of state forest, state parks, wildlife management areas that are potential, at least for consideration for some expanded use. That's not the issue. It's how do you get access and how do you have suitable parking? Thank you for recognizing that it's really about getting there and the neighbors and the impacts locally. So we have to have that. It's the hardest part is to figure out where's these, okay, Maria, north facing slopes, a few hundred acres of a bull on a state forest. We can identify those. It's how do we get the, the infrastructure for the, to, to allow it to happen for access. Forestry can contribute to that. And then I, as a forester, I see this as really a great place to move towards. Some of you have heard me say this, I can't resist it uh, here that, you know, we had a, a great project with Audubon Vermont over, you know, the last decade or so, uh, forest, foresters for the birds, integrating songbird habitat management into traditional silviculture for timber management. Uh, one of the elements was silviculture, you know, forest management with birds in mind. It's enormously successful and powerful and impactful, and it's been emulated all over the place uh, for a lot of good reasons. And I'll leave that there and just simply say, I am keen on the idea of skiing, um, uh, silver culture with skiing in mind. The same sort of thing. How do we integrate in a, in a thoughtful way? Like we're gonna do some silver culture. Maybe we'd have a rotational grazing approach to certain areas would become after a, a thinning of a certain sort would be phenomenal skiing opportunities, but it won't last forever as it regenerates. We move over maybe some rope and boo and we go to the next zone and we have this sort of cycling around over literally over a hundred years on a you know, 10, 10 year cycles that we move around. So just thinking that way, because we could benefit from the infrastructure that the forestry operation allows for a landing and access, et cetera. So there's a lot of possibility there. Our staff know that I'm ex excited about this and, and we're looking for ways to kind of integrate skiing opportunities, looking for them in our normal silvicultural approaches. I appreciate also that folks have recognized that yes, there's so many things we have to manage for and on public lands because it's public land and a lot of interests. So we, we like to look for ways to integrate and balance and also to kind of maybe, I don't want to call it zoning, but realize you can't do everything on every acre and certain things are somewhat exclusive to other things. Sugaring, for example, is an example that's kind of an intensive single use. So we have to be careful about overlapping uses and compatibility, but there's a lot of possibility there. Um, Jumping out, Steve, I mean, Matt, to you want you're thinking about the, the oversight of recreational trails and Act 250 and all that. Do you want me to comment on that and where that stands? I, I think there's a couple of pieces. You know, I, I, I think people would be interested to hear just, you, you know, I know it's um, uh, this probably can't um, go too deep into it, but I, I think people would uh, it'd be great to give people a quick update on that and, and um, you know, the, the backcountry handbook maybe as well if, if um, you want to touch on that. Yeah, there's a tremendous amount going on in all these different places and uh, it, it, that uh, I think it's fair to acknowledge that yes, the, the planning on state lands is slow and cumbersome, but it doesn't mean things haven't happened and aren't happening and there's all these partnerships. So it, it's a lot to talk about. I'll just cover, um, reference was made to recreational trails in Act 250 and it maybe not being a great fit. And that's kind of a great way to jump into it is that it was a, has been identified over a long period of time that unlike a box store or residential development zone, something, I mean, clearly recreational trails sort of a little bit different. And I think everyone recognizes that yet 
at a certain level, they can trigger Act 250 jurisdiction. And from that point, it triggers a whole lot of questions and lack of clarity and maybe some inconsistencies. Does the whole parcel uh, attach to Act 250? And uh, what if the trails stop being used? And, you know, and so this over a few years emerged a lot of questions about maybe there's another way. And I'll just jump through all the work that many folks have done, trail groups, stakeholders, conservation organizations, public officials, legislators, to sort of see, is there a different way? Uh, there was a bill that, uh, that uh, the Act 250 modernization bill, it was quite an epic, and it ended up being slimmed down to a couple things that included a trail provision to buy some time, get some clarity in Act 250, and maybe have the stakeholders continue to work on an alternative. Ultimately, the governor vetoed the bill because it had other problems, but he was really interested in this trails thing. Governor Scott has been all along, and he said, you know what? Well, maybe we can get back to Act 250 this winter with a new legislature. But in the meantime, he issued an executive order directing myself to continue to collaborate and convene with the stakeholders, particularly the Vermont Trails and Greenways Council, to consider an alternative mechanism to Act 250 for the oversight of recreational trails. That work's going on. We're, we're, we're imagining a kind of a BMP-based approach whereby organizations who manage trails could then enter into the Vermont trail system, which exists in statute as a, and there'd be a benefit associated. If you, 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 you as a requirement of el, uh, an eligibility requirement to be in the Vermont trail system, you would adhere to this modern set of BMPs that consider the impacts to the environment and local neighborhoods, et cetera. And if you are following those, you are in compliance and then you have a pass on Act 250. That's a very broad generalized description of the concept that we're trying to push forward here. To just clarify and just move on so we can have a world-class recreational trail system emerging, continuing and emerging throughout the state with certainty and clarity. Um, and, you know, but really high standards, uh, particularly where the environment is concerned. So that's what we're working on. And a, and a kind of a realization of late that this can tend to focus on mountain bikes, and to some extent hiking trails and where do skis lines and zones and dare I say glades fit into this where they're not, they don't have infrastructure necessarily, they're winter only um, and they're not one thing, a treadway, right? They can, so we're, we're gonna, we've, we're now embracing that and saying we need to include this um, in our proposal for a new way of looking at recreational trails. How would we consider these, especially above 2,500 feet, which is treated differently in Act 250. All of which brings me to the Backcountry Ski Handbook that FPR staff and partners, Catamount Trail Association in particular, have been developing, um, which I'm now reviewing a final draft of, and it's awesome. I, I, I am really into it, which is kind of a handbook for everyone to kind of, how do we do this? All the things you've been talking about here tonight. Um, and I think building this BMP-based approach to oversight and clubs buying in and saying, yeah, we're that, we're good, we do this right, and we're going to do it right, and and uh, is a is a, a really hopeful prospect. And uh, but we've got you know, as was mentioned, everyone has a different approach, different thoughts about what's what's valuable out there. And so, it's not a slam dunk, and it's not going to be a rubber stamp. So we need a community to come together, be grown ups about it, uh, and find a path that's I'd like to think built on these concepts. How's that, Matt? I, I know I'm machine gunning, but I'm trying to get a lot of info out for people and trying to be as clear as I can. That's that's great, and um, Ray's giving the thumbs up too. I you know I I, I think um, there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes, and I, I think it's great to give people a little window into into the efforts. Um, Happy to do it. Yeah, again, folks can follow up with questions, and we'll get yeah. you answers. Um, and I, I think that's a really um, great and sort of 
optimistic and, and hopeful note to, to end on as, as we look forward. Um, and, and we've had some questions rolling in from um, participants here. So I, I want to um, throw a, a few of those out. Um, I, I think Matt, you, you spoke to this a little bit, but um, somebody on YouTube is, is asking whether Sugarbush and Mad River are considering any more access during regular operating hours for skinning. Um, we are, uh, as I mentioned, the, the goal is to do it much, much earlier this year, but get the mountain open for uphill access on a designated route for our pass holders and shareholders uh, this year and, and see how that goes. Um, so I'm looking forward to seeing what that looks like. And then uh, as far as people who aren't a shareholder or a pass holder, uh, we're talk we talk about it often. Um, our biggest issue is we have limited, limited parking and limited other facilities. And when we're open for lift surf skiing, we need to maximize those facilities. So I don't see, uh, I guess the best way to say giving up a spot in the parking lot to somebody who isn't uh, invested in that day's skiing financially, buying a lift ticket or otherwise. Uh, assholders, shareholders, people buying lift tickets, we need spots for them. Uh, so until I can overcome that problem, I, I'm not sure we would be looking at you know, unfettered access for people that don't have a pass or a shareholder or a ticket to the mountain during operating hours. Yes, similar for Sugarbush. Uh, there's been no change to our uphill policy as far as um, letting additional um, uphill travel during the day. Um, as far as we're concerned, daytime is for downhill, and um, that's our revenue driver. You know, we currently don't believe that it's worth the risk uh, to put in a dedicated lane and policing our uphill travel. You know, we allow um, those who want to earn their turns to do so before and after operations. Um, it's been working, you know, mostly well, and we want to keep that going. Um, and we're kind of content to leave it the way it is currently. Thanks for that. Um, Mike, I know you just turned your, your video off. Are you, we, we've got a few that are potentially headed, headed your way if you're no ready problem. for a little, little late round here, maybe. <laughs> I won't bail on you, just managing some, uh, some incoming here and didn't think everybody needed to see that. So uh, what, where do we want me to go? I see a couple questions here. Do you, you wanna direct me to them, Matt? Yeah, we've got a few, I think, for for you, um, first up, it, it was posted a while ago, but um, from from Kevin Russell, wondering if Vorec um, would support additional resources for land conservation for public access to Vermont, BC. He's got a bunch of questions in there, but um, and yeah. and um, yeah, so let's let's start there. Sure. Uh, yes. In fact, uh, the, even officially. I think, you know, generally and actually officially, the VOREC steering committee and various reports, our very first set of recommendations to the governor and our annual reports, um, we, we have a strong conservation presence and have made recommendations in support of, uh, you know, increased um, acquisition and conservation of, of forest lands and wildlands, uh, managed lands. Uh, wildlife areas uh, for, with public access. Uh, in my time as commissioner, and I know it's true at Fish and Wildlife as well, it's kind of a basic thing. When we make plans and 
real estate transactions to acquire land or interest in land, we re, we would basic we have a basic requirement um, with that. Two things that are paramount for me um, that the the local elected officials uh, give us a notice of support. If they don't want to do it, we have a real problem, and that there will be public access. And so. Um, Indeed, we've expanded, we've, we continue to, and it's with this in mind, we've, we've added, I mean, the Bolton Nordic um, addition to Mount Mansfield State Forest is, you know, that's during my time as commissioner, and this is significant achievement in adding public lands accessible to backcountry skiing. Um, so one of many examples and on it goes. So, I, and Vorex certainly supports this, so what I'm saying. I know the question went on about our current state parks and forests able to be managed for backcountry skiing, yes. Thank you, Maria, for giving a wonderful shout out to our work in Willoughby with you all and Luke, staff like Luke and others. And we're doing this elsewhere in the state. Uh, and as I've said, we continue to, I have interest in continuing to do more and looking for other ways, which will depend on the full emergence and maturation of these local clubs to help us do it. Um, and, um, and you mentioned Camel's Hump. And yes, the long range management unit plan for Camel's Hump, 46,000 acres, uh, 26,000 acres, is it, of, uh, forest land in, in several towns all surrounding the, the hump. Um, and it, it includes, it, the draft plan is in review right now. It's finished and its leadership at A&R and myself, especially at this point, uh, kind of held up by COVID, but it includes a proposal for expanded access on Camel's Hump for backcountry skiing. And the only real trick there, I think is, well, people have said, you know, really more when you, you don't have access, appropriate sufficient access to manage the backcountry skiing you already have. So I just want folks to know it's just not simple, but we actually have proposed it and we will do others as well. So I think that's, Vorex certainly supports it. We have a record of doing it and uh, currently going on um, and um, proposing new access um, in the future. Thanks for that, Mike. Uh, yeah. Appreciate it. And sort of jumping down, um, it was sort of a general question, but I'm wondering if you could sort of speak to your experience on, on state lands. Um, somebody's asking about, is it possible to manage land for both hunting um, and, and ski use? How would those, those uses overlap? Well, uh, yes, in a word, yes, uh, it is possible and we demonstrate it a lot. Uh, and, uh, I, and I would say, you know, I'm, Maybe it's leaked out here. I'm kind of a passionate skier, but um, also a passionate backcountry hunter. And um, maybe I'm so lousy at backcountry hunting because I'm often finding um, ski line. I'm looking more at ski lines and hmm, what about this? And what's the access here? So um, yeah, I think it's totally compatible. Uh, not necessarily in any given moment, but uh, and it depends on what wildlife we're talking about and uh, what the approach is. But I think it can be, and we've shown that, and no reason to think otherwise hunting and backcountry skiing and managing for them um, is, is totally doable. Um, there was a question about cutting firewood on state lands. Do you want me yeah, to handle that? Yeah, that's I was going to go next. Do you want to jump, jump in on that one? Sure. Yeah, this, uh, I'm not really sure. The, the question was about um, whether it's still possible to cut firewood. Individuals could cut firewood in state forests marked by our foresters. Um, they thought that helped keep some zones skiable. Um, so that, that was the roadside firewood program was a great thing where people could sign up for like three or five cord lots that we'd mark. They're mostly roadside. We didn't allow equipment or, or machinery. So if you were willing to go down in and cut some marked trees that our folks had marked with ready Woods Road access that you could drive to and then haul the blocks of wood up to your pickup or whatever, 
um, you'd go right have at it. And we got a lot of nice, um, you know, tending work done. Um, but I'm not sure it really provided a lot of ski opportunity. The the the, the questioner is saying that, and that's that, I'd like to hear more if that's true. Uh, the bottom line is we don't do a lot of that now because it was so successful that we've kind of run out of places to do it, where there are you know improvement cuts to be made that are near a road that has ready access, um, and uh, it was decades and uh, very popular, and we just don't have a lot of sites that are available to it. Um, and we're not against it. It's a little bit of an administrative thing that takes some time for people to pay attention to and organize and there's safety issues, et cetera. But uh, we'd love to do more of it. And it's really just a matter of it. Not, we've kind of run out of, we were so good at it. We've kind of run out of places that need that kind of work that have the easy access. Great, but if, if that kind of thing could lead to a co-benefit of increased access or better infrastructure for parking and there was a partnership there, and that's great creative thinking and I'm all for that. I would love to see us do all the things that bring people together. You know, Diana said, you, apparently it's easy to get people to go out there and work in the woods. I'm, I'm taking note of that. Uh, but, uh, you know, um, we got to have the rest of it too. Great, thanks. Um, I, I, I don't, um, Greg, jump into the chat and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm not seeing more questions here, but I, um, one thing, and we, we could do a whole panel on this, so I, I, um, I, I sort of hate to throw it out at, at the end, but I would love to, to just go around um, and, and just talk a little bit uh, about um, how we can how we can do better as a collective community and making it easier for people to um, to get out and, and utilize these these resources. I think you know there's 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 a lot of demand, but um, Mike Mike spoke to it earlier with with Vorec and wanting to sort of shifting the slogan from um, if you're out you're in to if you want to be out um, you're in and and I think. Um, you know, I, I think I would almost, not to be presumptuous, but I would almost go one step further and say that, um, you know, I, in our experience with the CTA, like in our, our youth programs in particular, sometimes people don't even know that they want to be out. Um, and they, they come from backgrounds where it's just not part of, part of their culture. Um, and, uh, you know, we work with a lot of new American students who come from places that don't have winter, you know, and, and, uh, but they fall in love with it when when given the opportunity and and it's a it becomes a really powerful um, uh, driver of community I think for um, an opportunity for for some folks and so um, you know I, I think it it's it sort of drives a lot of conversations right now but um, certainly um, outdoor recreation you know it's it's no less relevant so um, love to sort of throw it out there and um, you know if folks want to jump in, you know, what, what can we be doing to, to break down those barriers in the backcountry ski space? I, I'm really interested in hearing any ideas that people have, because my perspective is that backcountry skiing has one of the highest barriers to entry. If you're not a good downhill skier, how can you start just, you know, if you don't already know how to downhill ski, how can you climb a mountain and suddenly become a backcountry skier? Um, it just seems to me how can that, that you need to already be a backcountry skier before you can become a backcountry skier. Um, um, how can we welcome people that are new to the sport 
when so many of the people that are in the sport already are so protective of, oh, this is my secret place and I don't want people ruining it. Um, I think there's a lot of barriers to entry to this sport and I would be really interested in hearing how we can get more people welcome to it. I'll share a little of my experience, um, actually not in the backcountry world, but coming at it from um, Nordic skiing and then also in the Alpine world. Um, in Alpine, um, I'm really impressed with what um, our local mountains, Burke Mountain and Jay Peak, do to, to um, give access to local schools. I grew up in this area and, um, you know, it was a real treat if you got to go to Jay or Burke. And now a lot, I mean, COVID's restricted it a bit. <laughs> um, but on a, <clears throat> a normal year, um, they're hosting all sorts of the local school, school groups for six or seven week programs with um, really discounted rentals if they cost anything at all. And so um, it's awesome to see the the mountains doing that for the for the school communities and the schools taking advantage of it um i also am the director at northwood stewardship center and um i'm kind of lamenting the loss of a lot of nordic ski programs the bill coke league they still exist but nordic is a awesome that's that's the you know what you do out your door i mean you don't need skins or anything fancy just some old skis and so i think you know matt mentioned the youth programs but i think anything you know whether it's supported at the state level with funding for those types of programs or um but but just getting kids on skis it's it's not just you know for us we're not really working with new americans but we work with a lot of kids who grew up in the northeast kingdom and had never put you know put a ski on until they came up to northwood so um you know, I think both of those approaches don't get it at backcountry quite, but it gives the gives the hook and the and some tools to get out there. So I have a lot of hope for those two approaches. Yeah, I think I think there are a number of ways where I think the the backcountry community and in, in, in you know within the broader context. So again, this this notion of getting out in the snow, so whether it's a lift serve or whether it's Nordic or whether it's backcountry, um, there, there are great examples of things that are already occurring in, ter in terms of trying to address um, you know, underrepresented uh, communities in, in the ski uh, world. Um, you know, one, uh, well, first I would say shout out for the CTA youth program you know, in terms of what that program uh, effort is in terms of providing opportunities for underrepresented groups uh, to have an opportunity to get out there. Um, I think the other thing in specific to maybe more of the backcountry groups and backcountry chapters is think, think about this from a diversity of terrain opportunities. So, you know, our, those of us who've been doing this a lot, we tend to think we want to go for the big terrain, right? But there's, potential for creating uh, beginner terrain uh, that's in town, for example. And, you know, I use that term loosely, but it could be, you know, something that's behind the school or, or over in the town park where there may be a, a small hill, it may be already a field, it may be already mowed, uh, maybe not. You can bring that, you know, resource to bear to help create a, a, a beginner terrain where folks can begin to learn, whether it's, uh, you know, pasture skiing, the true snow fields of uh, Vermont, right? And, or, you know, low angle uh, gladed skiing. Um, so 
I think it's kind of trying to at least lower that barrier and providing uh, terrain opportunities that don't necessarily require high, high skill set. Um, and also, I think as chapters and as a CTA, we can specifically reach out to uh, LGBTQ and BIPOC communities and other sort of underrepresented communities and per, you know, offer to, to you know, provide support uh, as a sort of a framework. In other words, if they want to get out on tours, you know, we can you know, try to find ways to help them identify places that would, would be good and, and, and identify those leaders in those communities who could potentially provide opportunities um, for folks that may otherwise feel uncomfortable. Some, some comments in the chat echoing the echoing your comments about low angle terrain, Steve, for sure. So other. Well, I'd just like to mention on that, that that's, uh, I've been hearing that for some time with a little one learning. Uh, and as I age, I grudgingly admit, uh, I, I think that this is a really great thing to be looking to provide more of the sort of all access family level, entry level uh, wood skiing um, for a lot of reasons. And I'm, I'm interested in that. I think we tend to focus on the, you know, the wow. And uh, we got to think about that for a lot of reasons. And I'm into that. Thanks, Mike. Um, lots, lots of great work happening, lots of, of, of great work to be done. And, um, you know, we're, um, we are right up against eight o'clock here and I, I wanna be respectful of, of everybody's time. Um, I just wanna uh, thank all of our panelists again for, for joining us and for a great discussion and for your, your, um, your thoughtfulness and, and insights here. And um, also wanna thank uh, everybody who joined us on YouTube and, and on Zoom um, for uh, joining in on the conversation tonight and for your questions and, and comments. And, um, Hope everybody has a chance to uh, to get out over the next few days and and play in play in the snow one way or another, um, whether you got 18 inches or three. Um, <laughs> hope everybody has fun. So um, thanks again, and and hopefully we'll we'll see you next year um, for for some version of this. We'll we'll just have. Thanks all. Thank you, Matt. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, Matt. Nice to meet everybody. Thank you. Have a great night. Thanks.